you're getting it wrong. You know, there's still more time for things to evolve. And I'm not talking about gaining fitness. I'm talking about reducing fatigue. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. This episode is also brought to you by our proud sponsor, Giant Australia. For all your bike, training, and racing needs, ride life, ride giant. How do you make sure you are peaking perfectly in time for your race? You've selected your goal event, you've done all the training and hard work, but how do you know if you'll be in ideal shape come race week, and more importantly, race day? We're answering that question in today's episode. Dad, welcome back to another episode. We've got heaps to talk about today from the UCI World Cycling to the upcoming World Athletics Champs and, of course, the main topic, peaking. Welcome in. Thanks, George. Um, Yeah, great to have another really um, topical topic because it's really important when things like the World Champs are are on and uh, that can filter down to Masters age group racing as well. Peaking is such a difficult thing to get right and I can't wait to discuss it. Um, our, our normal starting segment uh, what are you grateful for yep um, really nothing to do with uh, sport <laughs> I could go on about I'm in week 14 but I won't um, <laughs> of my comeback um, uh, the fact that I get keep getting dropped in races that I'm entering on Zwift is kind of disheartening <laughs> but um, <laughs> but that's to be expected as you progress through the journey. Um, so my gratitude is nothing to do with that. We've actually been in the middle of winter here in Melbourne, which is quite cold, um, not as cold as some places can get in the world, but our heater um, packed up three weeks ago. So uh, we, you know, we, are, we do have uh, my 90-year-old mum staying with us for the last month. So I've been really desperate to get the house warm and finally uh, the heater got turned on, the new heater got turned on today and and it's super, super technical. I can actually <laughs> control every room in the house, whereas our old heater was it was just diabolical. Some of the rooms were freezing and other rooms were too hot and <laughs> you couldn't really do much about it. Now I've got an actual house that functions uh, fluently with <laughs> controlling heat to, to turn rooms off. Now that all four children have left the house, um, we don't need those rooms. So it's great. It's a uh, modern technology. Uh, I didn't think I could get across it when the guy started to explain it to me, but, <laughs> um, but <laughs> already I've got the phone app going and, um, uh, we're sitting here and I'm downstairs and uh, the room downstairs here was freezing 10 minutes ago. Now it's up to speed. It's brilliant. Unreal. That's a good one. Uh, my gratitude, uh, speaking about winter, is we just finished our Zwift Winter Series. Um, we do a Zwift Winter Series every year. Um, and as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's, it's a lot of fun. We have a yellow jersey competition. So it's a five-race series. When It's a handicap. Um, and then we do a point system. So um uh, first place will get 50 points, second 49, 48, and then you add up your whole points throughout the series. And it's a, it's a, a real fun, exciting yellow jersey system. And anyone can wear the yellow jersey because um, Scratch might not catch the, the front groups. And uh, just grateful to see all the participation from Travel Athletes. We had 78 riders um, take on uh, starts and races in this year's winter series. And it was just so fun to see. I would prefer to be racing, uh, but I couldn't race this series. So um, it was really fun to watch anyway. It's so exciting to see the results each week, see the points adding up. And then the next week, see who it's really important for certain groups to really make sure they do well, to get maximum points. And then to see the yellow jerseys at the end is, is just really fun. So grateful to watch that. 
I must say, um, I have a hard time convincing people that it is a, you know, how we talk about A races, B races and C races. Um, These are definitely C races. They're all about (laughs) fun and they're all about actually getting the the goal out of the session, which is um, trying to ride for 30 minutes at threshold. That's actually the goal of doing a handicap race where you're you're not really riding over under, you're trying to hold threshold and as hard as I can try to convince people that the result doesn't really matter, that that uh, that's just not the way people take on this this uh, series. It's so and competitive. I've got <laughs> people really wanting to know what their handicap is for this week, and if they do well last week, uh, am I? Are you the handicapper going to give them a better uh, mark to make them improve or make it worse? So, um, um, you know, a couple of the scratch guys got up every every week, and we tried to get obviously as a handicap, you try to get everybody to the finish line together. That's the goal of a handicap and uh you know a couple of scratch guys were thinking we're going to keep handicapping them out of the race and we tried every week and they kept actually pulling their fingers out and and riding harder every week and catching the front punch so it was um you know uh, super coach nick lecandro actually won the a grade um uh yellow Yellow jersey jersey. and i did we did everything we could to stop that (laughs) happening Um, (laughs) it was just too good so um it was a it was a matthew vanderpoel effort (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's a lot of fun. So what's caught our attention before we get into the topic of peaking, but it's all kind of related to what's caught our attention because we really want to chat about some of the major events that have been happening. And uh, we'll start with the UCI um, World Cycling Championships. And we have two examples of our own athletes that went and competed in the, or tried to compete in the Masters Age Group. And we really want to tell these stories as, as anecdotes because uh, there's both two really good lessons here in, in these athletes' experience. So the first one, one athlete uh, went all the way to Glasgow but didn't make it to the start line. So can you explain what happened and the decision-making behind this? Yeah, and uh, frustrating uh, experience um, to be preparing for an event um, for a long time way back and doing everything right and um, ticking all the boxes and uh, going going to travel overseas and making the world championships event his final destination in glasgow and and training in the in the in the mediterranean and really doing some great climbing around some epic epic climbs in spain and france and and just having the, the time of his life and and really coming into the world titles in tip top form you know peaking as the topic is today um and a week out getting as sick as he's ever been um uh Vomiting and diarrhea um, with with some flu symptoms, um, yeah, just a, a, amazing things going wrong. Um, and all the whole family uh, traveling with his family, uh, wife and two kids, and the kids were in daycare, and they come out with some uh, bug um, from daycare and spread right throughout the family, and you know basically couldn't eat um, for two or three days. Um, just you know really. The worst experience you can have five days out from something you've been preparing for, um, and just having to go through that journey with him about what what the best so- solution is. Um, can he, can he still do the race? Um, and of course he can still do the race. Uh, but my question was, I don't know if he could make it because uh, it wasn't like a course where it was out and back a few times and a few loops like the actual elite race was. It was, uh, I think it was. 14 laps of a 10k loop or 10 laps of a 14k loop actually it was 10 laps of a 14k lap but the grand fondo for the masters was uh one big loop and if you actually this came into a discussion uh, to whether or not he should do the, the event because if he it's 150 160k in the grand fondo if he got to 80 or 90k he was actually the furthest point from from home and no matter what he did he was still gonna have to ride 160k to get home 
Um, so, you know, not feeling 100%. He was nowhere near that. He was probably five out of 10 uh, on the day of the event. And he'd only really been out to eat food two days prior to the event and he'd lost three kilo um, and dehydrated as well as, as losing, you know, and he's obviously his, his energy levels were at all time low. So, so all the indicators are saying that, well, if you do do the race, what the, what the outcome is going to be is nothing more than average at best. Uh, completing it would be the goal. He went there to come in the top 10, you know, to try and get in the top five and, you know, in his, in his words, I want to win this thing. Um, and, you know, so the expectation is not to go there and, and com- complete the event. That's what he could do any day and any Grand Fondo anywhere. Um, so so my advice, and having experienced that myself for some big A races where I'd had to withdraw or actually before I did do that scenario, I actually competed and competed poorly. And asked myself after when I did compete poorly, why did I put my th- myself through that? And when when I was putting that scenario to him, he really came up with the right decision, which was to to not take part in the race. And and it's so disappointing to be travelling that you know and preparing for you know six to eight months out, and then get to race week and and you can't actually can't actually do it. So uh, I take my hat off to him. He didn't. Crack, crack the shit. So he just really, he really just took it in his stride. He's devastatingly disappointed. But uh, but you know, there's there's other other things that he can. He's young. He can he can uh, front up again. And knowing that the World Grand Fondo Championships are going to be in his home state back in Australia in 2025 was a was a like a helpful um, scenario to think about to, to aim for that. Yeah, so yeah, look. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost a consolation. Um, and you know, we had another, we had two other guys uh, preparing for it. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a just a really good uh, lesson for everyone because I think nine out of ten people would choose to race, and it's really hard decision to say no, I'm not racing. And yeah, you would just go, I'm in Glasgow, I've come all this way, I might as well just do it. But yeah, your advice was really against that for and for good reason. And I really loved his attitude because I just um, said to him, oh, sorry to hear, like it's pretty devastating for all the hard work you put in. And his response was just brilliant and exactly what we love on this podcast. And he said, well. I had a really good, I've had a really good fun holiday with my family. It's really good to be over here regardless. Um, these things happen and we move on. And it was just such a good attitude. It wasn't what was me or um, you just appreciate what the, the, the trip for what it was. That's really great. But yeah, take us through the next um, next couple of, of athletes we had. This, yeah, we've yeah, kind of had a range um, of experiences here, which is really good to learn from. Yeah. And look, Scotland's probably the furthest point from Australia. And <laughs> I should know both my parents are Scottish and they, they caught a boat in 1958 uh, to Australia and six weeks travel to get here. So I absolutely know that Scotland is the furthest point from Australia. So it is a long way to go. And one of our other gun athletes who's won four back-to-back uh, individual time trial national titles uh, was planning to go, but um, things worked against him, um, you know, with work and family. Um, so he had to make the decision a few weeks out that he wasn't going to go. So that's mm. that's an example also of a disappointment when, um, you know, the potential was that uh, that he would do very well there. Um, and, you know, he's almost dealt with it the same way as um, as Jacob did. So it was it was you know tough again. And and we actually got Trevor uh, to the to the line, which was which was uh, oh, you know. One out of three, and and, mm. and and we've said this on the on the podcast so many times. You know, getting to the start line <laughs> is something that's yeah. that's not that easy. Um, yeah. You know, we, as a, as an as an age grouper, there's so many things that can happen to us. Um, 
you know, I could mention 10 things that would derail anybody's um, plans, uh, you know, down to losing your bike or your bike not appearing, your luggage not appearing, your shoes are lost, you know, there's just minor things. Your bike's broken, there's de- derailers broken. Uh, so many things can happen um, that would pre- up, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, prevent you from actually taking part in the event. And uh, anyway, Trevor got there, which was which was great and, um, and oh, had the race of his life and, you know, when I looked up the results, because obviously it was probably 11 p.m. at night here for for uh, 10 or 11 in the morning in, in Glasgow and uh, was waiting, desperately waiting to see what the times were coming up on the screen. Um, and it's, it's a live, it, that shows you live tracking. So, um, so yeah, I'm always sitting there as a coach going, oh, how's it going to go? And um, and it turns out he was he missed out on second place by 16 seconds. Um and first place was a minute and 10 seconds ahead of the rest of the field, which was quite strange to have someone that far ahead of the, ne- the next five or all within 16 seconds of each other. Um, and what a, ah, what a great – my immediate reaction was look at his data. How did he perform? It was the fastest time in terms of uh, speed, his average speed, and his power was better than it had been, um, you know, for a long time. And And – and he is a you know sixty six year old sixty five year old athlete who's riding forty two and a half k's an hour, which is you know for those out there listening know how hard it is to ride above forty k's an hour um, for a thirty minute time trial. Um, so you know Trevor's uh, he's he's got every right to go and do a, a world championships, and you know to come in the top five in the world is is pretty impressive. But uh, he's so disappointed because he had a slight mechanical. Um, which was his chain dropped um, halfway through the ride, um, which, you know, we saw Vanderpol's crash and his cleat and his uh, tightening mechanism come apart. You know, he would have lost 15, 20 seconds there with that and Trevor's probably lost, we don't know, 10 to 20 seconds there, which, um, you know, what what could have been, what should have been, that's racing. Um, the The thing that I'm trying to get across is we aren't defined by the result. Um, it is a real, a real big bonus to get on the podium at the world titles. And um, but if you execute the best you can, you do a PB. That's way more important, in my opinion. Um, and it's easy for me to say that. But there's been many events where I haven't actually won the race, and I've done a PB, and I've been more happy than I've when I've won a race. So, so I'm a real advocate for you know if I've done the best I can and it wasn't good enough regardless of the mechanical, um, that's just part of racing and uh, can happen to anybody. So I'm really proud of, um, of all three guys attempting to go to the other side of the world and, and, uh, and you know, it, it wasn't to be for Trevor, but uh, the experience was great and he'll be better for it and, um, and his hunger is even, even more um, um, ferocious, I should say. And, look, he's gone there as the Australian time trial champion and his expectation would be that he would be – and he was. He was good enough to be, you know, second, third or fourth. Um, so, um, so fantastic efforts. Yeah, especially off the back of our time trial podcast last week. You know, we really spoke about, you know, where you can get performance gains and it's incredible that we spoke about, you know, how many ways a time trial can – seconds can be gained or lost and then to have second to fifth or within 16 seconds just like what happened in the pros it's it's unreal and and yeah he might have gained a lot more time on them throughout the course and then lost that 15 or 20 seconds and i think when we're looking at the power it almost looked like 30 seconds of 
of power drop while that was getting fixed. So it's a long time to you know, not be holding that top speed. But uh, great, great lessons all around. I think it's really good. Um, and we do want to touch on um, at kind of in line with the, the topic of peaking, how good Vanderpool's performance was and Unfortunately, the women's race is on this Sunday, but this podcast will, will be released after that, but we won't be able to talk to, about it because we, <laughs> right. we can't see the race yet. But um, Vanderpol's form, I think he, he rode the tour. He didn't ride exceptionally well um, at the tour. Uh, he did some amazing things, no doubt, but by his standards and, and by the standards of the, the freak three at the top, you know, Vanderpol, Bernard, Pogacar, um, he didn't win a stage, um, which just seems ridiculous to say, but um to come into this in such good form and just rode like he did. You know, Van Aert said himself, um, I had great legs today, but someone else had better legs. And that just sums it up for me, I think. Yeah, and even Pogacar said that was the hardest race of his career. And mm-hmm. a lot of he, said said he, he said he nearly fainted uh, after he'd finished and between that and the podium. Mm. And he said he'd never been so tired and he had mm. sore legs. And, mm. and it was a brutal course, you know, mm. that – I love that sort of course because the best rider wins and mm-hmm. we are Van Aert fans and Pogacar fans and not so much Vanderpol, but, you know, what a what an incredible ride that was. Um, he was the best rider on the day and deserved to be uh, world champion. And, you know, we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, he is the world champion cyclocross. He he is the world champion road rider yeah. and he's in, the, he's in the world champion mountain bike. To come. So he could actually yeah. be three-time world champion in yeah. one year on three yeah. different disciplines. Yeah. So people who think Vanderpol's not up with the top riders in the world, you might have to rethink that one. Um, yeah. And it's an example of getting it right at the right time. And there are many people in the world who do that well. We want to get into the peaking topic, but I do want to mention uh, two just really uh, amazing things that have happened uh, in the last month. And one is that we've had four in the athletics, we've had four Aussie women break four Australian national records in a 21-day period. And it is just uh, unbelievable to see, especially coming into this run with the world champs uh, in Budapest, uh, which is why I'm, where I am right now, actually, uh, next week. And um, to see, so in the 800, Katrina Bissett broke her own national record, running low 157, which is unbelievable. Uh, in the 1,000-meter event, which isn't run too often, we had both Abby Caldwell and Lyndon Hall break the Australian record. Abby Caldwell... Uh, ran a 234 and Lyndon Hall 235, and that was both both them under the Australian record. Um, in the 1500, Lyndon Hall took back the Australian record off Jess Hull. I think that's happened three, four, five times now. They just keep edging each other out. You know, Lyndon broke the four-minute barrier for the first time three years ago, I think. So the first Australian woman to run under 359, and then they just keep edging each other out. And she ran a 357, I think, and she beat Jess Hull's record by 0.02. So just hilarious that they, that just they just keep edging each other out, and it's so great to see. And then Jess Hell herself ran a mile Australian record, which was 4.15 in one of the most incredible races in, in athletics history. And that was the race that Kip Yagon smashed the mile world record by five seconds. It was 4.12 and she's run 4.07. So to put that into perspective, the world record was 4.12 and Jess Hull's run 4.15. You know, that is just scintillating form. So this all happened within a 21-day period. It just so shows the strength we have in Athletics Australia right now. It's, it's unreal to see. So Yeah, it's super exciting, isn't it, to have so many uh, women, Australian girls, running so well and they, they're pushing each other. That's the good thing when you've got a little group of – it reminds me of the era when um, Herb Elliott, Ron Clark, um, and Pers- you know per- under Percy Seriot and all those those really gun runners of those e- of that era um, were all just pushing each other um, to be better to be better athletes and and I think that's what's happening here and the standard keeps going up so people have to you know come up with better better performances so it's brilliant. 
Yeah, and to, to cap off, the Tour de Femmes um, finished uh, maybe one or two weeks ago. Um, we hadn't talked about it yet, but I think just has to be mentioned that Demi Vollering capped off one of the most historic seasons ever. The the amount of wins she had in one-day classic races was yeah topped off by this Tour de France win, and she was too good for um, Annemiek van Vluten, um, winning the, the last stage and, and crowning herself champion as well as the last time trial to, to really finish it off. So I just think that has to be noted because incredible performance over the seven-day tour, um, the second female Tour de France edition ever um, but what a season from her I think it was it was almost the perfect season and, and you can't get much better than that and when you look at the results not many people have had a better season so really that just has to be mentioned Yeah and uh, that team that they, they put together, boy there were some great riders, Lottie Pe- Kopecky was just as good and had they not had the t- uh, Tourmalay stage it could have been her tour And but th- that's what a tour is, a tour has to have a mountain classic but you know um, watching her time trial as well, uh, boy, that was a great time trial. That was really, really good to watch and uh, watching their execution and some some got it really w- right and others didn't, um, as, as you would expect in most time trialing. So it was it was a fantastic tour. I really enjoyed it. And the tactics really worked in Volering's favour because Kopecky had the yellow jersey going into that um, Tourmalay stage and um, uh, into yeah that last mountain stage. I don't know. I think the Tourmalay was one before. It was, was Tourmalay. Tour- oh, yeah, yeah. And... Um, yep that put them in such a powerful position because Vollering actually didn't have to do anything because if she just stayed in the group, then Kopecky stays in yellow jersey. So she could just sit and wait. And so it was like, you know, the 2008 Carlos Sastra um, Tour de France where where they had uh, Sastra, Frank Schleck, Andy Schleck all potentially winning the yellow jersey. And so they just had to sit there and they had to make everyone else do it, which is a really strong position to be in. But we want to get into the topic. So peaking, let's talk about peaking, especially for the age grouper because you're coming into your goal race, whether it's a goal Olympic distance, a goal half Ironman, Ironman, a world champs, you know, masters event, um, and you, you know, you really want to make sure that you are in as best form as possible on the race day. So, what are the key factors here? What are we looking for to to get this right? And remember, it's not the same for everybody. And and if you think it is, then you'll come up short or you'll overpeak, um, which which seems hard to do, you'll peak at the wrong time. And oh, the example I could use, and we, we've been talking about the world champs, so we might as well keep using the same same examples. And and Trevor in the individual time trial, um, oh, three, three weeks out, um, we did, uh, we did a, a time trial, a local time trial where, you know, another practice event for him. Um, we had, you know, 30-odd riders, um, you know, in the event. So he had a really good experience of a proper race conditions and, and, you know, he, he, he rode to the level that I was happy with and he was sort of, you know, not, not convinced that his form was, was that good. And the only thing I could say to him was, you know, your form is building and in three weeks time with some uh, freshening up and tapering, you will ride better than you did today. And to his credit, he goes, yep, I think you're right. I, 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 and what did he have to do? He had to trust the process. And and I said to him, that's what's happened to you many times before, you know. When I see your form building like this, and he did a, he did a little uh, local club uh, crit race that goes for 45 minutes uh, in the local uh, – Wednesday week, uh, went midweek Wednesday ride, and he rode some of the best numbers that he's ridden um, in years. And boy, did that really lift his spirits! And that with the time trial, where his time trial times and power was was you know really solid. Um, but but he just got you know that that's where you get that um, confidence and trust in in the process, and that is 
part of getting the tapering and peaking correct. And and if you if you overthink it and expect to be in your best form three weeks out, you're getting it wrong. You know, there's still more time for things to evolve. And I'm not talking about gaining fitness. I'm talking about reducing fatigue. And when you reduce fatigue, you can actually ride better without gaining any more fitness. And that's one of the things that people might not understand about what tapering does. And I've often used the bell curve. So you try to get your fitness up as high as you can four or five weeks out. And, you know, the last time should be two to three weeks out where you're training really solid still. Depending on the length of the event, if it's a short event like a, a 20K time trial compared to a half, half Ironman or a marathon, they're completely different scenarios. So you can still train a lot up to that, whereas in an endurance event, you don't, you've got so much fatigue from the training you're doing that you can't take that into the, the actual A race. So, so making sure that you have really trained well so that your fitness, if we use the example of training peaks where they've got the performance management chart and your fitness number might be, let's just use 100. If that's where you're trying to get to on race day, you will try to get to 105, 106 before then so that when you taper, you lose a little bit of fitness, but you gain freshness. And so three weeks out, you're at 105. Race day, you're at 100. And six weeks out, you're at 100. Three weeks out, you're at 105. And now you're back to a – but you, what, what's the difference? You have no fatigue. You are fresh. And so, therefore, you can actually ride with more intent, with more intensity, with more power um, than you could when you're at 100 with high levels of fatigue. Um, and, and I know that sounds a little bit complicated, but that is the art of tapering. Well, I'd love to use a story example because, as you said, one, everyone is different, and two, the feeling you get will be different for everyone, and everyone kind of needs to figure out what, what works for them. And this is why you know we'll talk about this, but experimenting with your B races and C races is so crucial to seeing how you respond to different levels of tapering. But I want to use the example of one of our riders who um, he came into a national time trial um, championships again and he was previous winner from last year so he wanted to win again he wanted to back it up and i spoke to him after the race and he he ended up winning uh, but he said you know it was really a, a t- true test of trusting the process again because he did the same taper as he did the year before but it is such a foreign feeling when you're training so consistently you are training under kind of fatigue a lot of the time and then he said leading into the race he was kind of panicking a little bit because he, he'd forgotten this taper feeling and he'd he was feeling really sluggish and really slow all week and just wasn't feeling fresh. Um, and even on race morning, he wasn't feeling that great. And that can really mess with your head. And he said it wasn't until he did these, you know, the three hard 30-second efforts, you know, 10, 15 minutes before the actual race, that he finally went, oh, whoa, I feel really good here. But it took that whole week of tapering to shed the fatigue. It took that whole warm-up period on the day, right up until that last 10 or 15 minutes, to really feel like, oh, I'm on here. I'm fresh. I'm, I'm these three 30 second efforts feel really good. I'm pushing really high power. And then he won it again and backed it up. And I think that's a really good example of how it is a little bit, um, a little bit tricky to, to match your warped perception of how you're feeling compared to how you normally do with the taper to, to get yourself peaking. Yeah. And, and it, it, the expectation is that you should be feeling good, but that's actually 
uh, hard because the body does not like change. And so we've been training a certain way for three, four, five, six months, and all of a sudden we stop training that way. The body gets accustomed, and we talk about the you know when we train with intensity and with uh, frequency and and a progression overload, we get an adaptation. We get an adaptation to training and and absorbing load. Once we start to reduce that uh, duration and and the frequency of training and, and keep a little bit of intensity, the body all of a sudden is reacting to a different load and it's it's going to be questioning, well, what's happening? Is this, I'm not used to this. And once again, we've got change happening. So our mind plays a really big role uh, in in how we actually deal with this period, and and you need to be mentally prepared for the fact that you might feel different than you've been feeling before, and before the the feeling of what you're feeling before different, that necessarily isn't good because that feeling is being constant tiredness, um, and so that's but that that's what your body's used to. So. It, it gets used to that, so is expecting that that's how it's going to wake up every day. But when you're in this taper peaking period, the body's, you know, almost going, "What's going on? I don't feel tired. This is there's something wrong." Well, it's actually not something wrong. It's actually you freshening up, so you can actually perform the way you want to when it counts the most. And and that's why C races, B races are really great contributors. Plus the training you're doing to get you to your A race. And there is no such thing as four A races in a season. That, that, that is just pie-in-the-sky stuff. And, you know, there, there are people who can do well four times in a season. We've got thousands of examples of that um, at, a, at an elite level. Pogacar, the spring classics, he was basically unbeatable. But then come the Tour de France, he didn't back up very well. And people could say, well, he had a broken wrist, so he didn't train as, as well. It doesn't matter the reason. <laughs> you know, that could have been a contributor, but it also could have been that he, he had such a hard spring classics that he still hadn't recovered. Mm. And he's still not the, the rider. Yeah, I don't think he's the Yeah, I still don't think he's the rider that he was in the spring classics as he was in Glasgow last week. Yeah. So we've got Post you know him trying fatigue, yeah. Yeah, we're trying. He's trying to peak three times in one season as a pro, and and you know we were talking in spring about how can anybody beat this guy, and here we are. You know he's he's not done anything really since the spring classics, and that's a harsh call. Mm. He's still an elite cyclist who's right there and and can top win three, on any given two, day, yeah. Yeah. but. But, you know, he lost the Tour de France and he's now lost the, the World Championships. And I'm just picking on him because I want to use that as an example of, of how peaking can, can, you know, not be quite right. And we can use Remco Evenepoel as well. Um, you know, unfortunately, he crashed. So he's had um, quite a, a large period out with, with injury. But he didn't perform well at the world titles. And the time trial is yet to come. So we've got Pogacar. We've got Remco, we've got Van Aert, we've got Roglic, um, we've got Garner, we've got so many guys who, you know, um, I'm not sure if uh, Vanderpol's doing the time trial because he's got the mountain bike as well. But, but you know, I can't wait to see what happens in this time trial to see whether Pogacar can actually win that um, and and prove us wrong that, you know, maybe he was really gunning for the time trial, uh, something he hasn't won before. So, you know, we don't really know behind the scenes what's happening, but but 
the point is there will be so many things that happen, uh, you know, a hard road race like that, how much is it going to affect them um, for their for their time trial? So, so you know, when you're trying to peak for an event, you know, and you've got two other huge events five days prior, how much is that going to take out of you? Or, or for some athletes, and I know we coach some athletes who need to do something hard before their A race, and I'm talking – Five or six days out, they actually need to, to go way over the top in, in intensity. And then they come out the next week after an easy week and perform even better. And that's happened many times. So, so there's so many examples I can give you of, uh, of pros and cons of, of what works and what doesn't. Um, one of the, the, the girls we coach for the Gold Coast Marathon, um, she basically had two weeks off before her, her Gold Coast Marathon and, and performed her PB by a mile. And I can say, oh, that's a great taper and, and uh, peaking example. But had she done something different, could she have actually run faster? So, you know, we, we're actually not going to know. This worked for this time. Uh, maybe if we tried something different in another race to see whether, in fact, she could improve with a different taper. And that's that's one of the things I want to get across. And I know I'm keep on talking here over the top of you a little bit, but it's kind of one of the things that what's what seems to work once may not also work uh, repeatedly for yourself so you're forever experimenting and depending on the the state of or part of the year where your race is uh, whether you're coming from a winter going to a main race that's in the summer from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere or vice versa um, we had the experience many times of trying to go to kona in october coming out of a june july august winter in australia and the majority of the Northern Hemisphere had these beautiful summers. They'd all been racing. They'd all been training, in, you know, in great temperatures. We had no races and we were training in, you know, ridiculous temperatures that were that making it hard for us to peak um, and train well for an event that was going to be, you know, the extreme temperatures of Hawaii um, going from the middle of winter to Hawaii was such a tough ask to do. Um, so they're examples of of the pros and cons of what you can and can't do. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've got some comment on that. Yeah, well, I think we could clear it up by saying what's what are the general guidelines and what are the general principles that we want to look at and then and then apply that individually from there because like you said, what can work for you might not work that well for everyone else. And, it, and it's a lot, it, I think it is a lot about kind of personal feeling as well, which sounds ridiculous, but, um, and we can't always trust our feelings. We do know that as well, but um what you prefer um, probably might have a better impact on race day mentally um, compared to what might be um, the actual you know, totally best foolproof taper form. And so one of the things we do know is that um, you do want to leave intensity in there, just dramatically reduce the volume. So come race week, I think it would be a mistake to take out all intensity. You know, you still want to feel sharp. You still want to feel fresh and strong. You just want to take out that volume. So you do some intensity without inducing any fatigue. I think that's a really important guiding principle for people to understand and then how much you do depends on the person uh, i personally really like to dramatically drop the volume um, just do really short sharp efforts um, i just feel mentally so fresh doing that uh, i really don't like i just really want to make sure I'm, I'm shedding that fatigue as much as possible and i'm not afraid of losing potential fitness quote-unquote fitness in that last week uh, that's just my preference but i think that's a really good starting point for people to understand yeah a lot of people Absolutely think tapering it means shutting down and trying to freshen up with no training and and that's I think a, a big mistake you you really have to um, reduce the volume there's no doubt about that you, the only way to get rid of fatigue is to do less training and going out there almost you know the example we've used of 
studying for an exam and cramming the last four nights, it's too late. It's too late to do that cramming, that, that amount of work. Same in a, in, a, in a sporting event. It's too late to try and catch up the fitness. That's, that's finished. You now need to try to freshen up. So you reduce the amount of hours you spend training. But that doesn't mean you don't do any intensity. Um, and this is not the same for everybody. I'm, I'm talking generally. Um, for most athletes, if they keep some sort of intensity, really short, sharp stuff like you explained in your example for yourself, um, that works well for most people. So, you know, instead of doing a session where you've got, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of really high, maxed out high intensity, plus your warm up and your cool down, and you've got, you know, an hour and 10 or an hour and 15, during the taper week, you would want to do, you know, between five and 12 minutes of, of hard stuff. And, you know, a reasonably good warm up for 15 minutes and then five minutes of cool down. And there's your 30 to 40 to 50 minute session. Um, if you're in the un, enviable task of going to an event where you've never seen the course and you're expected to actually go and check the course out, you might have to ride some of the course, um, which means I'm stressing to everybody, ride it at zone one and do your little efforts for that for that 10, 15 minutes. And if you have to ride for 90 minutes, it's not ideal, but if it means that's the only way you can get to see the course, then that's what you have to do if you haven't got a car. Um, so ideally you want to have a car so you can drive the course. Um, but, but you know, these are the things you have to do sometimes because you don't want to go to an event and not know what the course is, what the next corner is, where the hills are. That is, that's not advisable. Um, so, so we really want to reduce that op option, but if we have to, we, we have to, but, but yeah, so just really revving up the legs, uh, making sure they're not going to sleep. Um, and you know, the frequency of training is as long as you're doing something each day and each day doesn't have to have high intensity in it. So reduce the volume. Um, so don't have to train every day. You can, you can do some walking or, um, some, you know, some basic stretching or some, um, structured, um, uh, you know, uh, strength and conditioning, what you're normally used to doing, which is really light um, with no weights um, and stuff that you normally would do, but just reduce it all down. Um, and then and then just try and make sure that, you know, you're, you're eating and drinking, um, you know, not overly eating and drinking, but if, if the climate's hot, that you're making sure you're hydrated well the whole week, your electrolyte levels are good and you're, and you're giving yourself, you know, a really good boost in carbs so that, and that's, that doesn't mean going, pig out at, at the carb loading dinner it, it means you just making sure that you're that you've got the right you know right balance of of uh, nutrition so that if you happen to be in an endurance event that you can actually um, enter the event topped up your fuel tank is at at its brim the key to the, all the points you're making there as well is is don't change too much you know you're not trying to change the whole week it's not a totally different new training week so you want to try and ch stick to your cha same training schedule you know get your swim in or your, your couple of swims in get your couple of rides in with a potential run off the bike but yeah you just the keys are you're reducing the volume reducing the um, not reducing the intensity but reducing the volume of intensity so like you said you know a normal high intensity session might be 20 minutes or 25 minutes worth of intensity but here you might be doing 5 to 12 minutes depending on the session and I want to make a point that uh, it's a really good confidence boost a week when you do these sessions because there's no pressure to be hitting the top of the range. Um, you're, get, you're shedding that fatigue, so you'll be feeling better in some of these sessions. Let's say you do two by five minutes or, or three by three minutes, you know, um, just quite a short, sharp session. Or, I mean, the day before, we, de we generally just do three times 30-second efforts. But it is a really confidence booster because there's no pressure on you to really hit the top of that range. You just want to kind of be in that, in that range that you'd normally be. And 
Um, you might even be, be going at 90, 95%, but it feels really comfortable and really cruisy and you're, you're feeling really good. And um, that could be a massive confidence booster. And uh, I will say with the change thing, I had one example in, in one of my own races. I was really amped for this race and I really wanted to do well. And I, I just psyched myself out a little bit. And then the morning of the race, I got up a bit earlier than I normally would. And I really wanted to do some good kind of stretching, um, DNS work. You heard us do some uh, talk about the DNS on one of the podcasts, just kind of like body weight. You know, strength and conditioning to open up and I ended up just absolutely overclicking myself. I did about an hour of it, which I, I never do before a training session or a race. And I got to the event and my legs were cooked. I'd absolutely just, I'd, I'd hammered myself in the morning um, and still performed okay. But uh, I just, I just did not like that feeling getting to the start line with heavy legs. You know, that was the total opposite of the, of the effect, the desired effect. So it's really important that you're not trying to change too much uh, race week, but you are being really conscious of your volume intensity uh, and the frequency should stay pretty much the same. Yeah. And you know, you will have that feeling of flatness because of the change and, and just be prepared mentally for it and so know that this is what's going to happen. Your body's going to be rejecting your plans and be aware of that. And, and that is a normal feeling. So, you know, and I'm asking someone, you know, how are you feeling, you know, in the last week of the race? Oh, I feel terrible. There's something wrong. Don't, don't have that mental mindset. I'm feeling terrible. Yes, because I'm tapering. That's a good thing. And change your mindset and think of it in a positive way. I'm meant to feel like this because my body's reacting to change and it's a good thing. And if I wasn't feeling like this, then I would actually be starting to be worried. So, so yeah. Um, I hear so many people saying I felt terrible during the taper week, um, and and you know once you change that mindset around to that actually is a normal feeling because we're just changing the body's um, normal routine pattern which it doesn't like. Yeah, so I guess we want to finish off with what what can we expect kind of coming into the last block of training. Um, our advice has been you know you're not trying to pick six weeks out, you're not trying to pick three weeks out. So what is this last? Last kind of block that that'll be you know two to four weeks look like and what can you expect? Yeah, and and I'm a big believer in to get race fit. Guess what? Go and do some races and um, and if they're mock races that you've you know created yourself or cl- club races or anything like that where you're getting race ready. Um, and we do that in our program anyway. We call our last, you know, four weeks of sessions, we call them race ready sessions. Um, and whether you do that by yourself against the power meter or if you're running, you do that against the, the clock or if you're swimming, the same thing. But there is some competition that you're trying to achieve in that session. And so you're getting your mind and your body ready, ready to, to compete. Um, whereas the, the previous period of training is preparation of your body to train, um, to get your, yourself into a fitness level, where now we've accepted that our fitness level is pretty much getting to the level that we're happy with. Now we're wanting to test our fitness level in competition. So I'm a big believer in finding as much competition, uh, as I said, whether it's a BC or local um uh, event that's what you should be looking for and and you will you know you will get that that really uh, i i often say oh you know you, you're really race fit and people go oh what? i don't even know what that means um, it means it means that your body has adapted to the the highs and lows of competition and competition is unpredictable it is so unpredictable the whole Every event, you, whether you're doing a, an 800 meter or a 20k time trial, there are so many unpredictable things that can happen. You know, you know, take a road race. You know, someone goes off the front and no one's expecting it. You know, you have to react to unpredictable things that are going to happen. 
um, in, you're in a swimming event and you're doing a 400 and some some swimmers gets 10 meters on on the field you know you have to make a decision about reacting to that or not following your own uh, race strategy or reacting to that and seeing that person swim away you know these are things that that you will do in those preparation races where you will get confidence in uh, you know i can react to anything that's going to happen because i've done a few races that have actually got my mind to tune into um, the specific the specifics of competition and come your main race um, you're feeling really confident with your with your race readiness and your race fitness. I think that's a great way to finish. Any any final words of wisdom or um, anecdotes you want to say to, to finish off this topic? Yep. The one thing I really believe in is you're still better uh, under underdoing the the preparation than overdoing it. And and that's the a weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a really controversial thing to say. Almost. Um, are you saying that we should be underprepared in our training? No. I'm saying that you don't go into into a race exhausted and and train too much. Um, you know, you, you, whatever the time span you've had for that training period, don't try and catch up and skip things to, to get your fitness higher, which in fact will probably make the performance on race day worse because you're still carrying so much fatigue from trying to catch up fitness. So if you haven't given yourself enough time for the event that you've selected, you're better off going into it fresh. That's, that's my advice is not trying to cram um, training in at the last minute and getting into race day exhausted and performing probably below what you should have with less training. Mm. That's an awesome way to finish. It's going to be really exciting to see, uh, especially with the World Athletics Champs coming up uh, the next couple of weeks. We have seen some incredible performances in Diamond League over the last couple of months. There's some of the best performances ever. It's been really a season to remember so far. And so it'd be really interesting to see all these athletes. There's been, what, seven, eight world records broken, maybe more. A insane amount. I would say 30 or 40 national records broken. People are just running out of their skin. So it'd be interesting to, interesting to see all these athletes, how they perform at the world champs. But but that that's also a topic that this is a championship race. And so the actual mm. PB performance is less important than the victory. And, and the people who are trying to be world champion – they're the ones who don't care about whether I run a PB, break a world record. They just want to win the race and be world champion. And there's other other athletes in the event who are happy to be in the final and they're trying to do a PB. So there's a whole lot of different things happening um, in these championship events. And, and, you know, you still need to peak for the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the form that people have been having to hold in the Diamond League as an example for the athletics, can they hold it when it counts the most for the World Championship? It's going to be really exciting as well because they've changed the rules in a, a lot of the distances, but specifically we're going to focus on middle distance and there is no more um, qualifying based on time. It is all position. So that is a big change that they've made because um, the old advantage was, so let's say there's three 1,500-meter heats. The last heat knows exactly what time they need to run to um, qualify if they just run a fast enough time. And so they have such an advantage over heat one and two, but now it's just something like the top six from each heat qualify. So it's full championship racing from the heats onwards. So you have to come top six in your heat. So it could just be you know, three laps of just sit and kick, um, but then the athletes that don't have a good kick will want to make it faster. So it's just going to be, I think, a great combination of, of championship racing right through. And the same thing in the 5,000 meters, you know, there's two heats, it's the top 12 go through us or something like that. Um, it's going to be great to see if they just go slow for half the, half the race and then someone believes they've got great six laps in them or 
Um, others need the pace to be high because they know that they know they don't have a good kick. It's going to be it's going to be a really exciting championship. So that combined with a bit of form, um, yeah, we'll see who performs well in the, in the championship championship style racing. Yep, I can't wait. It's going to be good. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much, as always, for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.